0: This is the Happy Are You Poor podcast, discussing topics related to radical Christian community. This is your host, Malcolm Schlenderfritz. My guest today is Joshua Hearn. He's a founding member of the Grace in Maine Fellowship, which we'll be discussing today. He's a Baptist clergyman and a practitioner of asset-based community development. Hi, Joshua. I'm so glad to have you joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me. It's good to be here.
0: And, you know, to get the conversation started, can you just tell us a little bit about the origins of the Grace and Maine Fellowship, how, how it started and how you became involved with it?
1: Sure. Uh, Grace in Maine was started in late 2009. Um, it was originally, uh, I, I guess it started with a Bible study, a group of people gathering in an apartment to read together and to pray together and to talk. And I, I think, I don't think there was really any design for it to be something more than that. Um, you know, there's really five people who showed up to once a week to pray together and read together and talk. and But it seemed that the spirit was moving in that. And we uh, began eating together and we began to find other ways to share life together in little ways. And then after several months of of life like that, we we stopped and looked around and And We realized that we were eating together once a week. We were praying together a couple of times a week. We were reading the same things. We were having really in-depth and and serious conversations about what it meant to follow Jesus in our place and in our way and, and what it meant to get involved more fully in the lives of those experiencing homelessness, poverty, addiction, hunger in our city. We were talking about moving downtown. We were talking about uh, sort of reshaping our lives toward this calling. And and so we stopped and we said, well, maybe this isn't a Bible study like we thought it was. Maybe there's something more here. Maybe God is um, is cultivating something in in among us. And so we spent some time praying together about that, reading together about that, talking together about that. And at the end of that, we said, well, maybe we're one of those intentional community things we've heard about, or maybe we can be. And so we decided to give that a try. And uh, now, about 12 and a half years later, we're still doing it. Uh, It has, of course, in 12 and a half years, it's looked different ways over the years. But uh, we still share life together. We still pray together. We still find ways to be community. And we're still deeply involved in sharing life and solidarity with and among people experiencing homelessness, poverty, addiction, hunger here in Banville, Virginia.
0: Yeah, that's that's really beautiful. And I like the way you put it, that you you came to realize that maybe you weren't a just a Bible study after all, um, that, it, that it grew up with no initial intention to start an intentional community. Um, I've just been talking with someone about how, you know, too often intentional communities start out with some kind of like grand blueprint and building, you know, physical buildings or buying a piece of land before the friendships and the the mission and purpose are have been allowed to evolve uh, organically so it's it's always beautiful to hear about how really the best communities just do seem to kind of grow up spontaneously
1: and we're just sort of just sort of uh, a wild plant that we then later try to figure out how to how to cultivate in a, in a good way as opposed to having just like the sort of the straight garden rows that are planned out and have to be exactly this and it's going to grow exactly like that. I think there's something good in wildness sometimes.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting, of course, if you don't do something, nothing will ever grow, but that something has to somehow be, you know, fluid enough to allow the spirit to, to work instead of, you know, imposing something on it. It's always interesting to hear that a community is ecumenical uh, and, for you what does that mean and how does it shape the ongoing experience of the community
1: sure so for us it, it is um it's not only a sort of an, an aspirational statement but it's also just a a statement of what is the case right that our community is made up of sort of widely varying uh, types of christians um, uh, with different backgrounds and different experiences and and so you know we've had uh we've had it feels like we've had just about one of everything at least um we 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 you know we've certainly had baptists and methodists and catholics and uh, Episcopalians and pentecostals we, we've had a little bit of everything the only thing we haven't had malcolm is we to the best of my knowledge we've never had an orthodox member and i'm pretty sure that if we get that one then we get bonus points from jesus for um, like completing the set. It's like when you hit for the cycle in baseball, right? If you'd collect one of everything, right? So um, no, but it's also it's also a commitment sort of to the way we do shared life and community is that we are bound together by following Jesus and, and by some basic commitments. But ultimately we, we want to be able to be united in spite of the diversity of thought on some things so that we don't have to all agree about everything, Um, but it can instead trust that the other is pursuing Jesus, pursuing Jesus' way in the way that is um, most intelligible and most uh, uh, comprehensible to them, and that ultimately it matters more that we give our lives over to the way of Jesus than the particular expression of how that looks in the moment and uh, one one of one of our one of our members with a long experience of of homelessness has reminded us on more than one occasion that there is no there is no quiz at the gates of heaven right there won't be a uh, a theology exam thankfully um, because i'm not certain any of us would make it if that was the case
0: yes I mean obviously the you know as presented in the gospel the quiz is you know What did you do to the least of these? And that's a much (laughs) more, much more practical um, kind of quiz. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe this is a good time, you know, like this kind of aspect of, you know, diversity of thought and get unified in a shared uh, mission and commitment. Could you talk a little bit more about what are the basic commitments of the Grace and Maine Fellowship? And also, then, you know, among all these diverse influences, what are some of the, the kind of formative background influences that came together to help shape? Uh, This community,
1: sure, sure. Um, So that's that's it's a fun question, right? To think about uh, like who and what makes us who and what we are. So there's a wide variety of ways of being involved in our community's life, and not everyone who's involved in our community's life is um, is doing the sort of the, the the deepest version of our shared life, and so uh we at the very heart of our community are the people who to who who have discerned this as a vocation and as a way of life who have committed to things like simplicity and shared life and shared resources who have um uh, sort of who understand this to be central to their identity and then we go out a layer from that and we have the folks who are regulars who are present for more or less everything who are deeply involved who understand Grace and Maine to be a part of what they do with their life and then we go out another layer and we have people who are who are there often who might show up to prayers or meals uh, not with the same level of regularity not with the same level of of uh, commitment but it is still something meaningful to them and we keep going out until we have people at the very edges who 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 like Grace and Maine and who Kind of want to see it happen, and who are, uh, uh, you know, just uh, who might show up to one or two things every so often. Uh, but at the very heart of our community, the the sort of the core commitment we we do hold sort of the Apostles' Creed as the as sort of a, a basic statement of what it is um, to what it is that we believe, what it is that motivates our our shared life and our way of living and and then um, we are committed uh, to things like uh, nonviolence and to solidarity with and among people experiencing homelessness poverty addiction hunger we are committed to um, making decisions in ways that uh, that don't just shift risk to people who are least able to support it or mitigate it uh, we are committed to sharing life and ultimately sort of the practice of 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 radical hospitality so opening our homes and our lives to make room for people who need a place to stay and a place to be Uh, not just a bedroom but you know a household and a family and a a way of life that's sort of central to what we do and when we look at the the biggest influences on what we do and how we do it uh, obviously there are um there are communities that have been deeply influential on our understanding of of what shared life means. And the Catholic Worker is certainly a, a strong influence, uh, the works of Dorothy Day and Peter Morin, uh, but also Koinonia uh, Farm in Georgia has been a, an, an enormous influence on our way of thinking about what we do and how we do it. Um, we, have, we have visited a number of communities that we think of as being, um, mothers and sisters and grandmother communities. Um, but the, those are, Quintanilla and the Catholic Worker are probably two of the the biggest influences. Uh, Rutba House in Durham, uh, North Carolina uh, has been a, uh, a dear friend and an influence on us. And then when we get down to like the writers and people, the writers and thinkers who've been influences, of course, uh, you know, I already mentioned Dorothy Day and Peter Morin, but, but also, uh, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has been deeply influential. Howard Thurman uh, has been uh, a, a big influence on our way of thinking about poverty and discrimination and uh, community building. Uh, I, I have to, you know, obviously, I'm going to mention um, asset-based community development people like Scott McKnight and Peter Block and uh, Melissa Browning. Um, I will personally say that, that Thomas Merton has had an enormous influence on my own understanding of uh, the teachings and way of Jesus, and as such, Merton has had an influence on the life of the community. Um, I am—I uh, I have to warn people occasionally that yes, I am a Baptist clergyman, but uh, I am a—I'm a Baptist clergyman who, um, first off, is not—is uh, not the. Uh, not he's not Southern Baptist and, and is also um, I like to say that I, i'm a, I, w- I would rather be identified with Baptists like uh, Dr. King and uh, Jimmy Carter than I would um, others. In addition, you know, I, I I sort of was brought back to the faith by the works of people like Thomas Merton and G. K. Chesterton and um, Dorothy Day.
0: Yeah, so there's a wide, obviously a wide diversity of of influences, and that's it's always beautiful to you know hear about kind of like what the what the spiritual ancestry I guess of of a project is, and I was struck by something you were saying about uh, there being kind of a continuum of commitment, and uh, you know that's as I you know had the privilege to talk to different community leaders, and that's something I've noticed about a really healthy community that there is that kind of there's no like hard rigid line between the rest of the community, the rest of the church, the rest of the world and members that there's something a little bit fluid there. And, and I, you know, it's more like what a, you know, any natural community, uh, contains.
1: Yes. I, I think, I think that, the, having some of those, uh, I think of it as a porous barrier, right. That, that, and it's even, it's, I think it is, uh, it's wrong to assume that any one person is, always in one of those sort of uh, layers, right? I think that we, we, we probably shift between layers for the most part. Um, some people live sort of on the border between two of those. And, uh, and depending on what's happening in their lives, depending on what um, what their needs and assets are in the moment, uh, we, we, there's shifting there. And that's, that's fine. That's good. That's, that's sort of how healthy community
0: works. And I also thought it was interesting when you were saying, you know, like that you have a commitment to sharing with one another in a really radical way at you know, like the core of the community. So what does that entail? How intense is the sharing of goods? Do you um, geographically live in the same location or not?
1: We actually live in a, in a network of, of houses. We don't all share one house or one building. We, we have a, a variety of houses and those houses are owned in different ways. Some of them are owned by the community itself. In common, others are owned by the individuals who live there. Um, others are owned by outside um, uh, outside owners and then rented uh, by the community or by the individuals who live there. Uh, and and but all of the the houses are within walking distance of each other. Um, <clears throat> some of them might be a bit of a longer walk, but <laughs> but nothing more than a couple miles. And um, so we, we we share that way, and then we also we. We contribute to a common fund and out of that common fund we we cover expenses we cover um, we make sure that everyone has a place to stay and that no one goes without food no one goes without medicine no one goes without. Um, and we expect that sort of the core group of our of our shared life is committing um, to give sacrificially to that fund to make it possible for us to cover the expenses of everyone um we also uh you know we, we use a, we we raise money to fund some of the other work that we do and uh, we do that um mostly through private donations from families and individuals who see what we're doing and want to see it continue
0: it, it seems that most communities even if they start out with kind of a more um spiritual focus it has to move out into the material world or you know it's not not fully authentic if you're not willing to commit materially to those that you're, you know, you say you're part of this community. Uh, and, you know, that brings up a point that a big part of what Grace and Maine does is offer hospitality. Can you tell us both practically and spiritually how that hospitality uh, works in your community?
1: Mm. Uh, well, hospitality, <clears throat> you know, there's this there's this temptation to imagine that hospitality is all about, um, either that it's all about uh, providing Physical shelter to people, or it's about, um, especially here in the in the South, uh, there's this expectation of hospitality is sort of um, uh, exaggerated politeness, right? It's it's cucumber sandwiches and iced tea and um, and lots of bless your hearts and um, lots of not saying the thing that you're thinking, and and I don't think that's hospitality. either right i think ultimately hospitality is any time that we open our lives and ourselves to other people to make room for other people both in our lives and our hearts and our thoughts and our prayers but also in, in and among our possessions right so that it's taking what god has given us and making it available to others who need that or benefit from that and so in our practice what that looks like most often is sharing meals together and it also looks like opening um, our homes to provide places for people to be uh, whether they want to come by and chat or you know use the bathroom or the shower or just have a place out of the out of the cold or out of the heat or a place to talk about things that matter or things that don't matter at all, but also if they need a place to stay if they need uh, a bedroom for a while if they need if they need somewhere where they can be a part of a household. so when someone stays in our house they they become, part of the family, right? We put them on the chore chart. You know, they we, we watch the same dumb TV shows together. It's uh, it's sort of a shared life in, in that sense. But hospitality ultimately is, is this commitment. At least the idea of radical hospitality in our practice is this commitment to sharing life, to opening ourselves to others. And it's built on what we believe to be central to Jesus' teachings, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. That we are called to love others and to love our enemies and to love uh, God and to do so fully and radically. And so, what that ends up looking like is uh, oftentimes hospitality, right? If loving, if love, as as uh, you know, here's here's the influence of Merton. If you haven't already caught it, right? If love is uh, um, the humbling of the self in favor of the other if it is the pursuit of the good of the other and not simply to recast the other into our own image and our own preferences, then love is itself uh, a hospitable act and hospitality itself cultivates love as a fruit of the spirit in our lives. And so uh, hospitality is also practically speaking very difficult and uh oftentimes overwhelming oftentimes uh, um, heartbreaking and and yet it remains good
0: yeah you know that that idea of really trying to give to the other without sort of uh, without it being sort of a power influence to try and turn yeah. the other person into something that they're not um, yeah. that's difficult of course that's all through you know, like the work of Dorothy day that uh-huh. um, that was you know, behind her suspicion of, you know, the large bureaucratic entities that purported to care for the poor, but didn't actually care for them in the, in the deepest sense, um, which is, you know, it it's a good, that, that aspect of Dorothy Day's thought is a good scrambling of kind of like the, this kind of sterile conservative progressive divide in the mm-hmm. United States that she was so radically devoted to helping the poor. And yet at the same time was so suspicious of kind of bureaucratic, attempts to help them It's good good reminders for those on both sides of that divide i think
1: well and 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 we see this in the work of howard thurman as well and the idea that neighborliness is non-spatial right that that, that ultimately the the call to be uh neighborly the call to be a good neighbor is is ultimately a call to a way of life not a particular action or opinion or um um yeah, action or opinion, it is, it is a a way of life is, with the, neighborliness is that is, um, and, and so if that's the case, then Thurman suggests that that we cannot really meaningfully do, uh, we cannot meaningfully care about the poor, or the hungry, or others without actually experiencing solidarity with them, right? So that finding our home with and among. Those experiencing poverty, homelessness, addiction, hunger, etc. Um, I think that's that's critical. It's, it, it's in that meeting. It's in that it's in that meeting of people in this space of of equity and equality. Uh, con- ideally, as Thurman says, sort of a, a context-free space where we can where you don't have to be the people that the world tells you that you are or have to be, but you can just be yourself and encounter the other, and in them find that God is moving as well
0: so you know as far as as far as community building you know part of your descriptor for yourself is that you're a practitioner of asset-based community development would you mind sharing a little bit about uh, what exactly that entails
1: Sure sure so uh, asset-based community development which you'll also hear called ABCD which is just like the best initialism ever right we just get the it first is. four letters of the alphabet. Um, ABCD is uh, is a commitment to doing good work in communities uh, that realizes that that oftentimes when we arrive to a neighborhood and we want to try and do something meaningful, right? And this gets back to the work of Dorothy Day and Peter Moore and, and others. Um, when we arrive to a neighborhood, we start looking at the deficits: what's not here, what's failing here, what's the what's the problem here? We can do this in neighborhoods, in communities, in organizations. We start focusing on the deficits. The failures, the problems, the, the the challenges. But the problem with that is that you can't really do anything with a deficit. Right? A deficit by itself is, is something that isn't there. And so when you try to build your 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 work and your your interventions and your action on what isn't there, you shouldn't be surprised if it doesn't have any foundation, right? Jesus talks about that in Matthew 7, right? That um, that, we, that, that you have to be careful how, where, how, and where you build your foundation. So asset-based community development says that, that every neighborhood has assets. The, the assets are things like people and individuals, things they care about, things they're passionate about, things they already know how to do, as well as the associations of people together. So there are already groups in the neighborhood, in the community, in the in the organization, people that get together already, that care about things, that work together. And so when we do asset-based community development, we're saying, let's go in, let's figure out what people care about. Let's figure out, let's focus on what they care about on what directly affected people care about. And let's build toward change based on what already is there, as opposed to what isn't there and what we're worried about. Uh, you can learn more about ABCD from a wide variety of places, but uh, uh, John McKnight, uh, Peter Block, these are big names that Melissa Browning, uh, Cormac Russell, but but also there's the uh, the ABCD Institute at DePaul University. Excellent organization. Uh, you can learn all about ABCD.
0: That's interesting because, yeah, I think it is a tendency to, you know, like negatives are are often more prominent in people's minds anyway, you know, people are more likely to complain about something that's wrong or missing than something that goes well, you know, talk about yeah. something that goes well. Um, but I was, as I was listening to you, I was thinking of, um, there's an essay by Wendell Berry in which he talks about how modern uh, physical development of the landscape, um, usually doesn't build on whatever the landscape had to offer. Like the first step is to get rid of everything and create a neg- uh, you know, like a blank space, um so as you said like you look at a modern airport and you would not know anything about what had preceded it whereas in a traditional city even though like development and redevelopment happens all the time there's always hints as to what had happened in the past and uh, same thing the work of uh, architect uh, christopher alexander um about how you know traditional development would always build on an existing fabric um but modern development reflects that kind of State of mind that that being that has to that has to ground itself on on nothing, on a negation, and and then will ultimately fail because of that lack of foundation.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I I, I think uh, and you you re- you reference Barry. Barry has also been a pretty big influence on on uh, our community and our way of life together. Uh, but but you're one hundred percent correct, right? That that uh, part of the problem is it's so intoxicating to. I focus on what's not there, what the problems are, but it's ultimately unproductive. Uh, and 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 what we find is that if if you come in and you go, and you come into a neighborhood and you say, well, here's the problem, what are we going to do about it? Um, you're going to spin your wheels for who knows how long. But if you can come in and say, like, what do people care about? What can we do about what they care about? It may not be the one thing that the data suggests to you is the problem. But if you start to build power and start to build change, well, power is contagious, change is contagious, right? So if we start making change, we actually find that you, you will address wider problems, but you won't do it so by by focusing on the problem itself.
0: Yeah, and you just think about like the legacy of disaster that was created in the middle of the last century when neighborhoods were were bulldozed out in favor of grand dreams of improvement that always, always made them worse, um, never, never actually create anything better than what they started with.
1: Agreed, right? Because when we, when we were focused on, on either deficits or on uh, the potential to, you know, privatize the public good for the benefit of a small group of people, then we inevitably find that, Um, You know, like uh, E.F. Schumacher talks about in uh, Small is Beautiful, the idea that um, growth at any cost is not necessarily a good thing.
0: So in your, you know, in your um, outreach to the neighborhood, I know that one of the things you do is uh, run an urban farm and a tool library. Can you tell us a little bit about those projects and how they operate and what the, the benefits are for your building of community?
1: Yeah, sure. Glad to. Our urban farm, uh, it got started because we were planting gardens. We've got a lot of gardeners in our in our community, in our neighborhoods. Uh, you might say that that we recognize that there's an asset in our work around gardening, and so we were planting gardens in our front yards, side yards, backyards. We were helping other people to plant gardens, and and then we started having friends come up to us and say, well you know, friends with an experience of homelessness or poverty or addiction or hunger, and they would say, well, can you help me plant a garden at the place where I'm staying? And we'd say, sure, yeah, absolutely. And so we'd go out and we'd help them plant a garden, and we'd say, just, you know, we'll we'll upfront all the costs, but when you start harvesting, just give us back like, like a tenth of what you grow, and we'll give it away or eat it or share it with people. And when we went to go check on these gardens later in the year, we discovered that people that that our folks were already giving away about 60% of what they grew to their neighbors and that the neighborhood was sort of kind of coalescing around these gardens. And so we said, well, okay, don't give us anything. Just keep doing what you're doing. Right. That when the neighborhood, when the neighborhood kids are coming around to like, like get rid of the the squash bugs or, or they are, uh, when the whole neighborhood is making sure that it's weeded and watered cared for. And they' And they're talking about you know tomato sandwiches. I don't know if uh, if you all do tomato sandwiches, but around here it's kind of a big deal when you can finally have a tomato sandwich. Um, but so and so we did that for a while. And then finally, um, a partner organization came to us and said that they had an acre and a half of property at the end of one of our streets that they were not going to use if we wanted to turn it into a larger version of our gardens and so we agreed and we started building on this unused and and frankly the property that we were we were working with had been sort of used for decades as sort of an illegal construction dumping ground so it needed help right but the soil underneath it was good and rich and healthy and so we went out and we we removed trash and we removed old broken foundations and we removed asphalt and we removed broken glass and we we, moved, we we cut down some trees and we turn those trees into garden beds, like into the barriers for garden beds. And we sent a lot of our, we sent four of our leaders to go learn more uh, in sort of an intensive class about how to do gardening in a way that is chemical free and very natural and very uh, resource um, uh, efficient. And so we did so, and then that has grown up into our urban farm, where about half of the leadership, more than half of the leadership now, is made up of people with direct experience of poverty, addiction, homelessness, hunger, and about half of the growing space we use to grow community beds where we can grow food that we eat, share, give away, and the other half is sort of plotted out for people to have their own bed, their private bed, where they can. They can grow what they want, and then they can do what they want with it. If they want to sell it, that's fine. If they want to eat it, that's fine. If they want to throw it at cars, that's fine by me. Just don't get caught, right? <laughs> and um, <laughs> just to be clear, I'm not suggesting anyone throw produce at cars. Uh, however, uh, the, the, it holds, though. The, the the history holds that people, by and large, they give away a lot of what they create, even in their private life, uh, because generosity is contagious as well. So we grow a lot and we give it away and we eat it and we share it. Um, some of it gets sold to the farmer's market or elsewhere. And then the tool library is, uh, it's exactly what it sounds like. It is a place where you can borrow tools. Hand tools, power tools, mowers, trimmers, you name it, you can borrow it. We even have some tools that you can't borrow because they're just too heavy to move. And so, you know, table saws, et cetera, that you can use on site. Our tool library was actually started by a gentleman who was experiencing homelessness when we first met him and also addiction. And when he was able to get clean and get stable, we were able to help him find a place to stay and work to do because he wanted work to do. He had been a carpenter before he'd kind of burned his bridges. And so we were able to get him some tools and help him to start working with those tools uh, to repair houses in the neighborhood, to build what you know things that needed to be built in, to oversee projects in our neighborhood and then he said, well, if, if the tools help me, then maybe if we could make tools available to more people, they'd help more people. And so we said, okay, well, what does that look like, Bruce? And Bruce helped us to design the first tool library, which, which he built into an old shed in the neighborhood that he had once slept in when he had nowhere else to sleep. And so he turned it into the tool library. He wanted the window because what he loved to do is sit at the bench, the workbench, in the morning with a cup of coffee and his Bible. And he wanted to be able to see up the, the hill to the street in case someone was coming down. He didn't, you know, he wanted to see them coming. And so he put a wall, put a window into that wall. And uh, uh, we, we were trying to figure out where to get a window. And he found an old car windshield in a, an abandoned lot. and He just sort of boarded that into the wall. And so for a while, the window on the tool library was an old car windshield. And I like to say that We were the only building in town that was crash tested but um he he was but the tool library eventually evolved into now it it sits behind one of our hospitality houses it is a, a very large uh outbuilding uh you know several hundred square feet and we and then with with an additional like lean to beside it for things like mowers and outdoor tools and then it is right next to our urban farm and so people can come borrow hand tools power tools mowers trimmers, personal protective equipment sometimes i even go down there and uh they've got the they've got one of those straight armed leaf blowers i really like that thing i don't really need it but every once in a while i like to put it on and feel like a ghostbuster and so uh we uh we we, bought, we lend out tools and in the summer pretty much every mower we have will be lent out to someone every day so they can either go mow their own lawn, or sometimes they go use it to make some money mowing lawns, or sometimes they uh, they use that they use the tools they borrow to go volunteer and to help uh, a church or an organization they care about. That's also fairly well.
0: That's really wonderful. You know, I've uh, had experience about how you know working together on again a physical project can overcome all kinds of you know intellectual and spiritual social kinds of barriers um, that, you know, like that physical aspect of of working together is is so important for that. It's really, really beautiful. And, and uh, something else, you know, that I'm noticing as you're talking is that it's really, really inspiring to me to hear about how the marginalized themselves are becoming part of the community leaders within the community. Um, Because so often, you know, when, when an organization or church or community says they care for the poor, that means they do a lot of curing for Mm -hmm. the poor. But I I was just talking with a friend about how, you know, like some wealthy suburban churches, you know, like they run food banks and soup kitchens, like great stuff. Right. But that if, if a poor person showed up to worship with them, that poor person would not feel at home. They would feel like, feel out of place.
1: Yeah.
0: The, the, you know, the suits are too nice looking and the, the space is too. So so that they aren't like a community for the poor; they're a community that you know helps out the poor, and that there's yeah. all the difference actually in the world between those two uh, concepts. So it's really beautiful to hear about how you're actually pulling people into that community.
1: It's enormous. It's an enormous difference, and 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 for us, it's it's critical. I, we would not continue to exist if we were a community that cared for. Uh, the poor and others, we are, you know, we're, we're roughly, at this point, we're roughly half and half between people with direct experience of homelessness, poverty, addiction, hunger, uh, discrimination, disability, etc., and those without that experience. And um, and that is, I believe, that's sort of the one of the core strengths of what we do and how we do what we do. Um, because I, I'm not interested... There are better ways to, to to help. Um, if if what we wanted to do was to be a, a, charitable organization that provided targeted intervention around issues of poverty, homelessness, etc., there are better ways for us to do that. But that's that that uh, discounts the importance of community, and so building community with and alongside people, recognizing that not only does my brother Bruce need a place to stay and work and help with his addiction, but I need Bruce. I need people, I need Bruce and I need James and I need Daniel and I need uh, Lisa. I need these people in my life because my life is less without them.
0: Yeah, being able to receive something, something back is important because otherwise it just becomes if if one person in a relationship is the, the sole giver, you know, it, it's, uh, it struck me that it's kind of one of the most amazing things I think about our Christian faith that, uh, you know, like I remember reading about how like all the pagan philosophers knew that like human beings should, you know, like, you know, have a reverence towards God, but like that we couldn't, they thought we couldn't be friends with God because he couldn't possibly need anything. And like in and of himself, that's true. Mm-hmm but it's so beautiful that he became a human being with needs like ours so that we could help him and then indirectly through the poor since he became one of them um mm-hmm. it's something that sets sets you know like Christianity so much apart from all the other expressions where you know like sure you know like god gives everything to us the, the divine is so much superior and can't really be on that friendship level unless we can somehow give in return. It's just amazing that among all the other gifts we received, the ability to give back uh, it's just just an amazing thing.
1: Absolutely. And rec- and recognizing that incarnation is itself an act of solidarity.
0: Yeah, coming coming to be one of us. is probably we forget sometimes how undesirable that looks from, you know, like God's <laughs> point of view to be one, in, yeah. in that sense, you know, to be one yeah. to be a human being <laughs> like mm-hmm. us with all the same problems and, and struggles. Absolutely. I know, you know, as, as you, in, in the area, when I was reading about your communities, you're, you're working for for justice in the in the local community. One of the things you do is advocate for tenants' rights. Can you um, tell us a little bit about what, what you do with uh, helping tenants?
1: Sure. And so, so uh, the biggest piece of the reason we even do any work around tenants' rights is because we are made up of people who have direct experience of being a tenant in an unfair or unjust situation, right? And so because this is the these are the assets we have, this experience, this understanding, this knowledge, this is the thing that we care about too. And so oftentimes what it looks like is that we are we are a place that people can come and we can help to mediate complicated situations around their their relationship with their landlord, their relationship with the building. And while we, I am not a lawyer and while none of us are, in fact, lawyers, there are certain things that we can help people understand about what the law says uh, about tenancy and landlords in the state of Virginia. Um, And so oftentimes the advocacy work looks like helping to answer questions about, well, what is your responsibility? And advocating for things when our friends move into new places saying, you know, yes, you do need a written lease. And hey, let's look at it before you sign it. Let's talk about what this means. Let's talk about what you're agreeing to. Making sure that people understand these things, and the only reason that we have the privilege to have that conversation is because we live in the neighborhood. We eat dinner with folks. We share life with folks, and they know that we that that uh, you know that with solidarity comes the idea that that their joys are our joys and their suffering is our suffering. And so uh, that it can be things like that, but it also sometimes means that we mediate. We have, upon occasion, mediated meetings between landlords and tenants to try to find something uh, like equity uh, between them to help them understand what their what tenants to understand what their rights are in in regards to how they deal with their landlord and how they uh, approach their landlord about issues of justice, but also issues of just. Provision of services, right? So that if there's no hot water in in the building, well, upon occasion, the 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 landlord doesn't want to fix that because it's expensive to hire a plumber, and so it is our opportunity then to mediate that conversation to say, well, you have an obligation to do so, right? Not only because of the law, because of who you are as a human being, right? You you really should treat other people, you know, black people. And so inevitably, it means a lot of that, a lot of education, but also a lot of support. So when we have had tenants who have pushed back against their landlord and been retaliated against, that's when we get to step in and and provide support so they don't lose a place to stay. They don't lose. They don't go hungry. They don't go without medicine. We step in and we make sure that they are stable enough and can continue to um, pursue justice, pursue equity. So that, mostly that's what it's looked like over the last dozen years.
0: Yeah, it's you know important because I know I've I've seen things where you know bad landlord tenant relationships can really destroy a place, and it's I think you know seems to be becoming more common. So yeah, it's good to hear that there are people you know working directly to help tenants in these kind of positions. Um. So you know. Uh, with community in general, like what have, what have you learned from your time about just Christian community in general, and especially like what advice would you give to other people who are trying to find or build up Christian uh, ways of life among other people?
1: Yeah, I think I think the the best answer we have to that question is usually usually something to the effect of. You, we, we, we have had to find our way of being community. And there are so many good examples of community out there. But the idea of just trying to replicate some other community in our shared life is uh, well, down that way lies a lot of frustration. And so what we've had to realize over the years is that we just have to figure out our way of being ourselves. And we can learn from other communities, and we can we can try their practices, and we can try to model some of our work after theirs. But ultimately, we have to be ourselves, um, and and recognize that that there are there are myriad ways of being uh, community and sharing life together, and that we're not bound to any one iteration or manifestation of that. That that as soon as we begin to feel like that, we are. Um, We're moving in the direction of of institutionalization, as opposed to uh, sort of a vibrant and kind of wild shared life in community. That has been an ongoing lesson for us over a dozen years of of stopping and saying, like, no, we don't have to be like them. Like, yes, I realize that you know that again, this gets a lot of attention and that gets a lot of attention, but we don't have to be them. We have to be us. And that ultimately, like any plant, looks like the soil it's planted in that we don't, if, if Grace and Maine had been planted somewhere besides Danville, Virginia, it would look different. It would act different. It would feel different. We, all we have to do is be who we are. And then the other thing that's been that we've really reflected on is that, you know, you look around the world and God plants lots of different kinds of plants in the world, right? There are, there are redwoods that are enormous and long-lived and there are orchids, which are Uh, delicate, and beautiful in their own way, Uh, it seems like, oftentimes, it seems that people only want to be a Redwood. They only want to be uh, a community that lasts for a 100 years and changes the world. Um, And instead of recognizing that maybe they're not, you know, maybe we're not a Redwood. Maybe God didn't want us to be a Redwood. Maybe God is planting an orchid. Maybe God is planting a rose bush. Maybe God is planting uh cilantro. I don't know. Um, we I guess if, if if you are the cilantro of communities, then you're very popular with some people and you taste like soap to others. I don't I don't really know how that metaphor works, but um no, it's um in recognizing that that we are ultimately we have to be faithful to the call that God has placed on our lives and to our community and that's going to mean that we have to be who we are not who we might want to be or who we think we should be recognizing that maybe god plants so many different kinds of plants because to to, to, to paraphrase gk chesterton just because god has not yet grown tired of planting new plants
0: yeah that's very uh very helpful advice Uh, you know as far as you know trying to replicate what other people do i think there can be a big danger um among some like christian organizations that have like a community focus that then do go and try and like plant themselves all over the world um you know starting new replications of themselves that all have to like follow the same guidebooks and the same and report back to the same directors and run there um and oftentimes like there's like good elements in what some of those organizations do, but it's, it's all kind of corrupted by this attempt to control something that should be a very organic and free process. Mm -hmm. And eventually whatever, Mm -hmm. whatever good was there gets pushed out in favor of maintaining and growing this, this increasingly enormous organization. So I've certainly seen that damage people uh, pretty badly.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And then too, you know, like your, your, reminder that we don't all have to be, I don't know, you know, whatever, whatever community is that really inspires us and seems to have, you know, like done so much great, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. You know, like I started this project of interviewing communities to try and, you know, give people inspiration and ideas. But of course I have to like weight it towards the ones who have enough of a formal structure to like have a website and a presence. I can't yeah. find, you know, those couple of families that just meet together for prayer and service. Uh, and will never have, you know, like a formal name even, yeah. um, yeah, I can't yeah. show that. And yet they will be like probably will always be more common than the more most definitely you know dramatic examples
1: most definitely and and recognizing that they're no less community just because they don't have administration and and uh uh, you know a a bank account and uh uh, they've never applied for a grant you know like well they're just as much community as, as any other
0: yeah, it's a very good and healthy reminder since I do think uh, I do think especially the community building field does tend to sometimes attract people with with more grand visions than you know than humble acceptance of what happens. So well thanks so much, you know, for for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to have you on.
1: Thanks for having me.